Do you enjoy learning via simulation, or do you find it difficult to suspend disbelief far enough to treat a plastic mannequin or actor like a real patient? No matter your stance, please join this conversation with medical education and simulation teaching expert Dr. Kevin Ching as we pull back the curtain and peek behind the one-way glass of an important aspect of emergency medicine education. back to another episode of EMIGCAST. Today we have Dr. Kevin Ching joining us. Uh, Dr. Kevin Ching is an attending physician in pediatric emergency medicine at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's also an assistant professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics at Weill Cornell Medical College. And perhaps most central to our talk today, he's the medical director of the Weill Cornell Medicine New York Presbyterian Simulation Center. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Chang. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to hear from you and uh, wonderful to know that you're doing so well and so successful at West. We miss you here. <laughs> I'm missing you guys too. I'm missing the Simulation Center. I had a lot of good times there uh, in the past. I'd love to hear today about what your work is like there, um, what the Simulation Center is like. I want to give a clue to some people who maybe have no experience with simulation education, um, what it's all about. Uh, so first, can I ask you, what is simulation-based learning to you, and why do you think it's an important learning tool? I probably got my start in simulation um, somewhere around, uh, I guess at this point it's about 13 years ago. Um, I had just become a new attending, and um, for me, the idea, the word simulation just sort of sounded like um, we were going to pretend. Um, and, uh, and so that's probably how I approached it at first. Um, there was this um, sim baby that was available uh, at a hospital that I was working at um, up in Connecticut. And um, I sort of just threw myself into the experience of using the sim baby and, uh, you know, found the experience refreshing, found it exhilarating. And that's sort of how I got a start. And that's where I first learned um, what simulation-based learning uh, meant to me. And o over the years, uh, simulation-based learning has sort of sort of meant very different things for me. The way that I think of simulation-based learning uh, today is um, as a model. It's a model of, uh, of education. Learners um, in simulation-based learning will learn through um, experience. Um, and so when simulation is used in education, it's an experience that is meant to replicate the way that we see, we hear, and, and, and sort of feel things. And so that our senses will then uh, provoke us to sort of think and reflect. In healthcare, simulation-based learning helps our learners to practice, apply, and interpret what they know. Um, and this is really meant to sort of foster the development of um, their knowledge. Um, and I like to think of it as rehearsing their clinical reasoning, their medical decision-making, and, and even procedural skills. And then very important to what I do 
it also helps to reinforce uh, teamwork behaviors like communication skills. I imagine that uh, maybe the, uh, not to make it cynical, but maybe the gripe that some people could have with simulation-based learning is, is they would say, you know, I'd rather learn at the bedside. I'd rather learn it in, in, the, real, um, in the real circumstances. So what is it that you think that simulation can offer, you know, in, in fostering communication learning and uh, in, in providing rich experiences? What can simulation offer that, that bedside learning cannot? Sure. So, I mean, very easily, um, simulation-based learning is flexible. It offers safety for learners. Simulation-based learning creates real-time experiences that can match your learners' needs. So bedside teaching is um, always going to be dependent on the unpredictability of real-world clinical medicine. Like once upon a time, we used to say that we learn by the apprenticeship model, you know, sort of see one, do one, teach one. If you wanted to learn about how to manage a patient who had um, heart failure because of um, like a viral myocarditis, you probably have to read about it. You learn about it from, you know, maybe someone's lecture. And then like once you understood the material, you could demonstrate it. And that's sort of like the the bottom lowest tiers of, of, of learning hierarchy in, in what we call Bloom's taxonomy. And if you really want to achieve higher order learning objectives in bedside teaching, then you'd sort of have to be lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time. And so if you, I guess, are lucky enough to be at the right place in the right situation, and you see this patient who has myocarditis with heart failure, then you've basically had your um, end of one experience. Mm-hmm. And so in the apprenticeship model, you've basically now just seen one and maybe done one. Um, so the reality um, for most of us as educators is that our students and residents may never see or encounter the patient with a complex condition or or maybe experience how to, you know, maybe navigate a, like, like a difficult conversation. So let's say, you know, this patient with myocarditis has profound heart failure leading to cardiac arrest and resuscitation. And so how often do trainees get an experience in learning how to navigate a difficult conversation around end-of-life care. Or let's say this patient um, ends up with a a central line and uh, a complication of that is like they develop a tension pneumothorax. And how often do residents, medical students even have the opportunity to insert a chest tube in a patient with a a tension? So simulation-based learning offers flexibility. So we can create these experiential learning opportunities pretty much any time. And we can do so safely, and it can be tailored to match whatever our learners' needs are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, rather than see one, do one, teach one, like the apprenticeship model, you know, simulation-based learning promotes the idea that you can see many, do many, um, and we get to decide, like, you know, when when that is. What type of different experiences uh, would you create for a medical student uh, versus would you create for a resident and someone later on in their career? You know, if you figure in medical school, you know, simulation-based learning sort of a tool that picks up where problem-based learning, you know, leads off. Um, so it builds on like the strengths of problem-based learning, like, um, you know, group discussions, group processing. And I think that simulation creates a shared learning experience for a group of learners. So one of simulation-based learning's chief strengths is that learners can experiment um, in simulation and you can learn from like the collective mistakes of everyone without any risk of like like harm to both yourself and or patients i mean you've probably heard before and i know you 
um, probably <laughs> taken to heart, um, like I do always that, you know, Vegas rules aren't in effect, you know, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And, you know, whatever you learn, you hope to apply in future care. And so, like we said before, simulation-based learning is flexible, so you can design and create whatever experiential learning opportunities to match your learner's needs, in this case, undergraduate medical education for medical students. And so there's a lot of different things that you can use this to train um, for. And, and, the, and the other sort of really cool thing about it is that you can structure it. Um, and so if you structure it, you can assess and measure um, your learner's achievement of like different learning objectives. So this is like important in competency-based medical education. And, and that's like a big deal in medical school. Like medical school is focused on developing basic medical knowledge, right? It's like connecting anatomy, physiology, pharmacology to your basic clinical skills. Um, so, you know, if you go back to Bloom's taxonomy, you know, simulation-based learning objectives in medical school are really focused on reinforcing understanding of concepts. The thing is like after graduation, simulation-based learning objectives sort of move up a higher order of learning objectives, right? And so that's really about like applying, analyzing, and synthesizing. Um, and so graduate medical education, you know, when, when you graduate medical school and you go on to become like a resident, it's really focused on applying that medical knowledge to clinical reasoning. So, you know, applying that medical knowledge to clinical reasoning, that's like trying to generate like a differential diagnosis and prioritizing that differential and thinking about like the why. Um, it's also about focusing on demonstrating like how do I analyze? How do I interpret? So that could be like translating your clinical reasoning into appropriate medical decision making, right? So that's like, you know, what diagnostic testing is important? Why? Um, maybe what medical interventions are necessary? You know, which one should be first? Synthesis, you know, that's a sort of like highest part of this uh, sort of Bloom's taxonomy in this pyramid. You know, when you get to that, like graduating, like medical school, you're really trying to focus on how to reflect on your actions and behaviors after a simulation to sort of modify and create new frames in learning. You know, that's tough to do in medical school because in medical school, um, it's like the water, it's like, what is that? The fire hose effect, you know, you're trying to learn so much information. And so Bloom's taxonomy is really sort of dead centered on um, memorization and understanding. And all of that is critical um, to set up the foundation so that when you get to graduate medical education, you can really start to apply interpret, analyze, and synthesize this, right? So basically developing the ways in which you think about the stuff that you already know. Mm -hmm. So you, of course, are um, working in emergency medicine and pediatrics specifically, and obviously very well-versed in simulation education. Do you think that um, simulation teaching particularly lends itself to emergency education or emergency as a field lends itself to simulation-based learning? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the fun things about using simulation-based learning in medical education for uh, emergency medicine is that, uh, you know, a lot of what people sort of associate with simulation is born out of the, you know, quintessential, um, quote, mock codes, um, you know, which is sort of like cardiac arrest resuscitation. You know, that's usually how people get um, sort of indoctrinated. Um, that's usually how people sort of imagine and think of the way that we use simulation um, in medical education. It's also the most, it's also felt to be the sort of like adrenaline pumping, most exciting ways in which uh, simulation can be used to, to learn something, like, uh, how, how to work in a crisis, how to, how to manage a stressful, tense, um, anxiety provoking medical situation. So as a mock code, um, that might be the first experience a lot of people have with sim education. And you mentioned your first experience being 
using one of the simulation babies. I'm curious, what type of sim technology have you seen changed? You know, what was that sim baby that you picked up for the first time like compared to the many different simulation mannequins and aspects of simulation tech that you use now? You know, back in the day, that sim baby was was the cream of the crop, high tech. These are sort of computerized patient simulators um, that are designed to mimic some very basic cardio pulmonary sort of physiology. You know, they can breathe, they have breath sounds, they have heart sounds, they have pulses, um, and they demonstrate vital signs. Um, typically, that can be projected onto a monitor. You know, as as they advanced over the years, they were able to demonstrate sort of very rudimentary signs of like mental status, which would include things like blinking, the rate of blinking. You could you could manipulate um, how the pupils um, sort of reacted to light. Um, you know, we nowadays have uh, mannequins that can grimace, can that can demonstrate different facial sort of reactions to pain, um, or they can turn their head, their eyes can track. Um, as you sort of move in front or up and down and uh, sort of in front of their face. Um, you know, all of this is just to sort of be, to, to sort of remind us that these mannequins are really just technologies, they're tools. Um, and simulation-based learning is about using these tools or technologies to create experiences. So like I said at the, at the beginning, it's really about creating interactive experiences to uh, help your learners sort of move up that Bloom's taxonomy ladder. You know, otherwise, uh, it's it's really just a prop. You know, the more expensive, the more high tech um, the prop is. Uh, sometimes it, it creates a more engaging, realistic experience, and that may be important in some situations in order to achieve a learning objective that requires a more realistic, more in depth, more lifelike engagement of the learners with the with the simulation experience. But sometimes that's not necessary. So, you know, for instance, if you know, a medical student wanted to learn how to put a central venous catheter in the internal jugular vein. They don't need a fancy, you know, $100,000 computerized patient simulator mannequin. All you really need is as little as perhaps maybe a, a block of gel with some veins inside that you can ultrasound to demonstrate the um, vein and the, and the artery. Um, and therefore, just how you would then use a Seldinger technique, for instance, to, to insert your central venous line. So, you know, like there are different sort of levels and grades of simulation technology, and it's really all dependent, again, on what kinds of learning objectives you're trying to, to achieve. Yeah, maybe I'm um, getting caught up too much on the importance of those high-tech mannequins because there is a lot more that goes into creating that experience. I remember taking some simulations from you, particularly stressful simulations with some very committed actors who were willing to make the situation very emotional. Could you speak a bit uh, how you go about you know, incorporating other people uh, into the simulation and, and how you go about creating that atmosphere to feel very realistic and feel realistically stressful? So as a medical student, I'm sure that you um, interview and assess uh, standardized patient actors for OSCEs. Um, it's such an important critical part of medical education. And, you know, when we do simulation-based learning for these sort of immersive experiences, um, you know, at the end of the day, these mannequins, no matter how expensive and how, no matter how high-tech they are, they're just like computer, plastic, and rubber. And so incorporating a standardized patient actor into 
an immersive simulation experience heightens the engagement and realism from the perspective of an adult learner, right? And so, you know, if you figure for a second, like, you know, as an adult learner, you know, like I said at the, at the outset, you know, when I started doing simulation, I thought of it as just being about like, how do you pretend? And, you know, if you're, if you're an adult learner and someone says to you, okay, I have this simulation, I want you to go ahead now and take care of this patient, you're basically asking them to suspend disbelief, to buy into a fiction contract and pretend. Now, that's going to be easier for some people than others. And for those who have an easy time, you know, buying into that sort of fiction contract, suspending disbelief, you know, they, they can get a lot more value out of that experience because, you know, they can sort of work from within the like reality of their own world. And then from the experience, they can sort of learn like how they would have acted, how they would have thought in that real situation. And then there are other people for whom that suspension of disbelief, that fiction contract is really, really hard. Like it's, it's difficult to pretend. And, and there are a lot of adult learners for whom that, that's just the case. And so for those people, having standardized patient actors incorporated into these immersive simulations where we use these high fidelity mannequins is critical because it's the actor who engages the learners and pulls them into that experience. Um, and so, you know, whether it's, for instance, you know, in a, in a scenario where there's, um, uh, let's say, a motor vehicle accident in the emergency room and the standardized patient actor is the brother of, um, you know, the victim, the trauma patient. And, you know, uh, in their role, they're, they're grieving or they're upset or they're anxious or they're angry about the sort of level of care they're receiving or, um, or at the very least, they're there to provide information about their loved one, that, you know, simulated patient, the mannequin. They can provide um, historical information. They could set the stage um, for this is what happened. This is, uh, you know, I was there, you know, I was in the front seat, you know, we were hit. Um, I saw my husband um, um, smash forward against the, the steering shaft. Um, he blacked out, um, you know, whatever, whatever the, the sort of simulation situation involves, you know, having that standardized patient actor there to provide direct information and then emote and then to create that tension, the stress, the opportunities for a team of learners to develop and practice their communication skills um, is invaluable. And so, you know, yes, on the one hand, standardized patient actors, commonly we use them in these uh, sort of OSCEs in undergraduate medical education. And then in these other sort of ways, we incorporate them, integrate them in very thoughtful ways into these immersive simulations where they really sort of make the entire experience feel as if it's actually unfolding in front of you. Um, I sometimes joke and say that these, these become then like theater productions, mm -hmm. um, which isn't to say that like a simulation has to be so realistic that it is like a theater production, but just more to say, emphasize the fact that, you know, in a theater production, there's a lot of moving parts that go to creating the show, if you will. And so in this production, one part is, of course, the mannequin. The other, of course, um, might be the environment. But then another integral part is the standardized patient actor. It sounds extremely challenging and stimulating to create these circumstances all around an educational goal. And I hope there are listeners who are interested in making this an aspect of their career one day. How would you go about doing that? How did you find yourself 
teaching simulation, being the medical director of simulation, and how does uh, another student find themselves in a similar position? So that time, 13 years ago, when I found the sim baby and was um, asked to to use it, or you know, or if you will, you know, out of a frying pan into the fire, or just thrown into the water and sink or swim, um, I, I realized that I enjoyed this idea that um, that we were able to flexibly and safely create these um, educational experiences for people, things where people would develop this sort of epiphany, aha, you know, moment, and realize that wow, um, you know, if I'm putting like the foot to the gas pedal, sometimes it's a lot harder to really apply um, what I thought I already knew in real life, in real life practice. And so when I realized that power of like, wow, we could give people a chance to not only realize it, but practice it. And therefore in the future, hopefully now have the muscle memory to be able to do it the way that they envisioned that they would and hope to do it. That's like crazy valuable. So I found at this hospital in Connecticut that I was in, you know, a lot of really inspiring and amazing educators all around me. Um, and so they, they motivated me, they inspired my curiosity, uh, my drive to sort of, you know, think about and discover sort of new ways to use simulation to, you know, create new curricular models, you know, think about like how to thoughtfully design new instructional methodologies and like what were some creative ways to like assess this. You know, when you start off in education in a career like that, at the beginning, it's all about like um, how much how much momentum can I build? How, how much of a track record can I generate and develop to show that this work that I'm doing is valuable to um, the institution, to a group of learners, and fulfilling and rewarding for myself? And so, you know, doing that for a number of years, you know, if you do it and you're happy and um, and you make your your learners happy, then, you know, eventually, you know, the important sort of decision makers, you know, around you, they see that they, um, you know, they see the, the return on their investment, they see the, the value in the work that you, you know, the work that you've done, like over the years. And so, you know, those kinds of innovations in like curricular development, instructional design, research, etc, scholarship, that's what ultimately created for me the opportunities to ultimately develop a simulation center um, here at Cornell and in New York Presbyterian Hospital. And so it's probably one of the, the simplest sort of pieces of advice that I could give um, for a career in medical education. And that is, you know, whatever sort of either momentum and track record that you develop early on in your career, um, as long as you enjoy it and you feel good about it and you're happy with what you do, you can build that sort of portfolio. And it's that portfolio that ultimately creates um, that value for the body of work that you do that others will then see as a reason to invest themselves into your work. So you've gone kind of above and beyond just developing simulation programs for New York Presbyterian. You have a simulation-based conference in pediatric emergency medicine. I love to see that you're sporting your conference t-shirt right now. Is there anything that you hope to see um, in simulation education in the future? Um, is there any direction that you hope to see simulation learning in the emergency room uh, go towards? Yeah. Um, you know, some drivers, whether it's, you know, I mean, it's fortuitous, but not so much. Um, you know, because of the pandemic, we were sort of forced to use simulation-based learning for remote distance via 
tele simulation. Um, and so over the last year, you know, we've been using tele simulation to phys physically distance learners. And we do so while still trying to sort of maintain and create interactive experience. Um, and we use a video conferencing platform, um, actually we use Zoom. Um, and we bring together a larger group of learners um, to engage in what is ultimately still a live simulation. Um, you know, in the future, I'd like to see more accessible virtual reality technologies to create collaborative teamwork simulations. Um, you know, so during this past year, we have been doing VR here. Um, you know, at the height of the pandemic last year in March, April, created a 360 degree virtual reality video on the management of a COVID patient and respiratory failure. And we did that in collaboration with the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and so in this sort of 360 degree VR video, people could step into the resuscitation room inside an ER and basically immerse yourself into a COVID resuscitation. You could watch it like on a, you know, on a 2D screen, um, but you could also use like VR goggles, you know, like an Oculus headset. And then you could just step into that room and you basically find yourself completely immersed all around you with like what's happening in this um, sort of COVID resuscitation. We put a lot of pop-up text in there to sort of help, um, um, elaborate on what's going on. And it's really cool to sort of be able to look all around you and watch all the people around you talk and do things and, you know, with pop-up text to sort of like annotate and describe like what's happening. Uh, it's on YouTube. And, uh, you know, I think the last count, there's probably somewhere near 60,000 sort of views, a lot of it from people around the world who, and the idea and the intention when we developed it last year was to share the best practice experiences that we had in both Philly and New York City, you know, before there's like, honestly, good evidence-based medicine practice um, on like, what the heck do you do? Um, you know, since then, you know, I've, I've been dying to try to find, as I said, you know, accessible VR technologies to create teamwork simulations. And it's hard. We did work with a, a vendor called Oxford VR, um, and we provide our undergraduate medical students here with interactive case-based screen simulations. And so students could interact with those simulations, with the patients in those simulations using VR headsets. And there was a feature that allowed for more than one student, two, possibly three, to work together. But it was never like a, a full teamwork collaborative simulation. And so, you know, like when I think about like what I'm interested in the future and what I look forward to on the horizon is when someone um, is able to create something where different learners can actively and realistically interact with each other on screen in a VR environment. Um, and so, you know, not just like a sim but something like where the where we can do something meaningful in the way that we do currently. I'm so glad you brought up VR. I was going to ask you about that, and that sounds fascinating. Um, the prospect of of one day having kind of a multi person VR and us all uh, learning in the same environment. Um, is there anything else on your mind that you would like medical students to know about uh, simulation education um, or pediatric emergency medicine in general before I let you go? No, just that, um, you know, simulation, again, is so much more than just a mannequin. It's so much more than just a computer. I mean, at the end of the day, those things are just technologies. Simulation is really about creating experiential learning opportunities. So if you think about simulation that way, it's not so much about, like, I have this, like, you know, this doll, this, you know, robot-like sort of mannequin. It's more about how do I create an experience where I get to practice, apply, and think about like, you know, how I would think in a real life situation. And I don't need necessarily all of the bells and whistles to be able to do that. I, I, I could potentially even do that with something um, small or, or, or very little at all. It all depends at the end of the day on, on what my learning objectives are.
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, again, this was Dr. Kevin Ching uh, joining us from Weill Cornell Medical Center, where he is the director of the simulation department. Uh, we'll definitely drop that uh, YouTube link to that VR uh, COVID experience into the show notes so that everyone can see that. So thank you again, Dr. Chang. Thank you, Jeff. So, so good to see you. You too.